The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. Black Lives Matter urges boycott of white companies for Black Christmas. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. Black Lives Matter has called on Christmas shoppers to boycott white companies as part of Black Christmas. The Black Lives Matter Global Network announced on social media that there should be no spending at companies owned by white people between Black Friday, November 26th, and New Year's Day. It encourages people to buy exclusively from black-owned businesses, adding, we're dreaming of a black Christmas. Black Xmas began in 2014 after John Crawford, a black man, was fatally shot in an Ohio Walmart store. The group also posted on the website, Black Friday sales are being rolled out weeks in advance of Thanksgiving, and at every turn, white supremacist capitalism is telling us to spend our money on things we don't need to reap profits for corporations. Let's harness our economic power to disrupt white supremacist capitalism and build a black community. The move prompted criticism from some social media users who said it was racist and segregating. Others praised the move and asked the recommendations of black-owned firms to support. Yeah, so this is what we need to look at. The rejection of Christmas, the rejection of Christianity... Because everything that is going on with Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the left, it's all Marxism. And Marxism is a godless system. It supports a godless uh, system of government. And really what it does is it takes us as individuals and puts us in the seat of God. And so I think we need to look at the full picture here because we're coming up on the biblical Christian holiday of Christmas. And I'm about to get biblical, so if that makes you uncomfortable, you might want to turn it off, because I'm not here for the clicks. I'm here to set the record straight on many things. This isn't my bread and butter. I really enjoy coming to you with material and presenting it to you in a podcast form. So if you appreciate that, then thank you. In fact, go give me five stars on Apple or Stitcher or wherever uh, to help us be more visible as a podcast. And thank you for spending your time with me, because it's really important to me, but um, it's going to get biblical because it needs to, because it's going to be about Christmas. This is my Christmas message to you. So as a conservative, we have to understand what our values and principles are. What is it that we're trying to conserve? We're trying to conserve individual liberty, freedom, right? And how does that freedom, how is it derived? Well, it's derived through natural rights. This is why many conservatives are Christian. It's not that you have to be a Christian to be a conservative. In fact, there's a lot of conservatives who are atheists out there. They don't, or they don't believe in Christianity. They just believe in the idea of natural rights. But my question to them is, who has given us natural rights? You don't, it, natural rights just don't just exist in a void. Somebody gives us natural rights. And if it isn't us, then who is it? Um, well, then it would be our creator. As a Christian, we understand that we submit to a higher power, and that power gives us the natural rights. And it's only when leftists want to infringe upon God-given natural rights, it shows you that they don't have reverence for that system. They don't have reverence for a deity because they have no problem casting their, their will upon you stepping all over your rights that have been given to you by God between you and your creator. Again, some people don't believe in a creator and they just think these laws exist, but the fact that they at least recognize these natural rules and these natural laws shows me that at least they're on the right path. They just have to be shown a little bit more. And in this podcast, we are going to show you uh, why Christmas is more important than just the story. There's little nuggets within the story that show it even, even more richly, and we're going to show from beginning to end in a very short way how the Bible is not contradictory. It doesn't contradict itself. 
how it ties together, how there's a long line that led to the birth of our Savior and his eventual execution and resurrection. Um, We're going to show you all of that and then show you how one of the greatest presidents of all time, George Washington, commemorated that and made a covenant which kicked off the blessings that we still as a nation enjoy. Blessings of success as a nation, blessings of, of growth and prosperity. And I think we need to look at all that and it will explain why Christians are under this system of government and this system of government is being attacked by Satanists. Now, that might be a harsh statement to say, but if you are atheist or agnostic, well, agnostic, you're just more, you're, you're just going to have your own spirituality and not really, you know, get into the religious aspects. And I get that. That's, but my thing is with atheists, you are rejecting God. If you were rejecting God, you were anti-God and being anti-God is, well, you're basically aligned with Satan at that point. Unfortunately, that's the only way I can predict it. Even though you may not believe in Satan, you have to understand that these systems of governments that come in the end times were systems of man-made governments used by dark powers. It wasn't just that you know Satan showed up and pulled off his face and, oh my God, look, he's running the show. No, that's not how it works. Men who had placed themselves in the seat of God are the ones responsible for it. It's not like we're not seeing that happening, are we? <laughs> so on the other side of this break, I want to get into uh, some things, some aspects of why we celebrate Christmas, why we as Christians, as conservatives, look to this, because think of it, it's about natural rights, okay? God gave us the right to speak upon ourselves, to say what needs to be said without reprisal. We get reprisal under a man-made government who wants to shut us up. They want to ban us from social media. They want to wipe out our books. They want to throw out our way of thinking. You know, we have the ability to assemble, to to get together as a group, maybe to worship, maybe to protest. We have that right also, the right to petition the government. Our government, the one that we as a collective entity, as the people, gave consent to a small group of people to represent us on their behalf because we were busy doing life and we knew that an order needed to be set and that we can, you know, select representatives on our behalf. Now it's the other way around. They think that they're getting elected there to come in and rule us. And that's not how this works. We have the right to, to protect ourselves with weaponry, to protect our freedom, to protect our families, to outnumber the governing body we put up there to keep them in check from running rampant upon us and stomping all over our natural rights. That's what the Second Amendment's all about. We have the right to uh, not be spied upon and not have our homes raided and searched, right? We have the right to, uh, once we are in a position where we might be a threat to the collective entity of individuals because we might have been wrapped up in a situation that may or may not be our fault, we have the right to a fair trial and we are innocent until we are effectively proven guilty. That's all been turned on its head. So on the other side of the break, we're going to have to go through biblically as to why we celebrate Christmas, ultimately into Easter, and why we as Christians can view that the entire basis of why our government was formed, the entire basis upon why our nation was founded, is based on a, a, a religion a Christian, a Christian religion and a, a Bible that, that gives us the, the tools to live out that Christian religion and why that book is not contradictory. And then we'll get into George Washington and his proclamation, his covenant that he presented, which was very similar to a covenant by you know Israel and, and God. So stick with us. It's going to get biblical, but I hope you enjoy how we're going to put this together on the other side of the break. <laughs> This is Adrian Slade. So we have established why we are conservatives. We are conserving life, liberty, uh, pursuit of property, property rights, individual liberty, freedom. And we understood where natural rights came from and why we have natural rights and why our Constitution was designed to 
protect the natural rights from we the people. So the boundaries are bound around the government and not about divvying out natural rights to you and I. The government doesn't derive the rights, so the government can't hand them out, just as though the government cannot take them away. And when they do take them away, they are stepping into evil because they are stepping over God's rights that he has given to us, and they do so because of their own desires for control. So we've laid that foundation out, but now we have to have the confidence in why we believe in the higher power that we believe in, those of us that aren't atheists, those of us that are Christians. Um, so to make that case, we're going to jump around a little bit. It's going to get a little biblical, so I hope you're fine with that, but we're going to jump around just a bit because I want to show you some of the instances within the Bible, the prophecies, the things that kind of tell you why things were going to happen the way they are, I mean, hundreds of years before they ever did, which shows the validity in what actually happened with the birth of Christ and then his death and resurrection. So first we're going to, we're going to read this one. Then the prophet said, listen here, house of David, which is important. The house of David's important here is trying people's patience. Such a small thing for you that you must try the patience of my God as well. Therefore, Adonai himself will give you a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel, God with us. And by the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, he will have to eat curdled milk and wild honey. That's actually from Isaiah 7. So obviously, I'm not going to give out the Bible verses until after I read them, because I'm not a preacher, and I'm trying to fit things into a bigger realm so that you're not automatically turned off when I start mentioning it. But that's Isaiah 7, uh, 12 through uh, 15. That was 700 years before the birth of Christ. 700 years. And what's interesting about it is he's saying the young woman is going to become pregnant. Well, the young woman will be pregnant. Usually that requires the seed to you know, fertilize the egg, and then the egg becomes human right? And we'll get to why that's important. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's important in the procreation sense, but we'll get into why that's important to make that distinction here. Now, this one is from Malachi, um, Malachi 3, 1 through 4. Look, I'm sending my messenger to clear the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Yes, the messenger of the covenant in whom you take such delight. Look, here he comes. Now, recognize the fact that Malachi is the very last book before Jesus comes, which it goes to Matthew. Now, in between Malachi's ending and Matthew's beginning, that's 400 years of silence. God didn't speak to anyone. Uh, there was no prophecies being given. There was no books being written. That's almost two American lifespans. So keep that in mind, that Malachi delivers that, hey, look, here he comes, and he does come. It's just 400 years later. But that is the interesting part to this whole prophecy. He says, for he will take, he will be like a refiner's fire, like the soap maker's lyre. He will sit testing and purifying the silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refining them like gold and silver so that they can bring offerings to Adonai uprightly. By the way, I'm reading out of the Jewish uh, English translation because it gets into Hebrew and there's a lot of things that are uh, illustrated in Hebrew text that kind of, I think, kind of loses its luster when it gets translated into other, other versions. But here's the interesting part. So we talked about the seed and, you know, the egg. When we get into what happened with Adam and Eve, let's go all the way back to Genesis. Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent fools her into eating it, the tree of, uh, of the fruit of all knowledge, uh, good and evil. And, you know, they once they have their eyes open and they are now awakened uh, to what is good and evil and they notice they're naked, they go hiding from God and God, you know, obviously knows what's going on. He finds them and says, uh, hey, uh, why are you hiding from me? Well, first thing he does is he marks the first death in the Bible by killing an animal and taking its, its skin and turning it into clothing. 
Now, that would be the first sacrifice. And that word is going to be the word of the day, the word of the podcast, the word of the Christmas message, sacrifice. You're going to understand why we believe what we believe, because the sacrifice uh, is going to be made richly uh, understandable when you look at some of the things we gloss over in the Christmas story, in the Easter story, that need to really be recognized because then you understand the importance of it all. This is really interesting if you want to really kind of blow some minds here. Genesis 3.15 is setting the stage for what is to come that bookends with John 3.16 and 17. And so when we read it, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and shall uh, bruise his heel. So basically, uh, in the uh, in the Jewish text, it says, uh, To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbirth. You will bring forth children in pain. Your desire will be towards your husband, but he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree um, that you were not to eat from, um, you're going to be basically cursed to the ground. You will work hard to eat from it as long as you live. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Um, but he gets into the whole uh, enmity portion and the seed. So if a woman has eggs and the seed is the sperm, how could her seed be what destroys evil? Because that seed was put there through the Holy Spirit. That's the Immaculate Conception, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. So, you know, you read all that together, and you've got Genesis 3.15 going into, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Um, you know, so that anyone who trusts in him may have eternal life instead of being utterly destroyed. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but rather to, uh, so that through him, the world might be saved. And so that is the fulfillment of Genesis three fifteen. but it gets even more, uh, into the weeds when we get into the line of David. So let's take it back to Genesis to go through the line of David, but it comes from Abraham. And this is from Genesis 22. God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he answered, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. There you are to offer him as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will point out to you. Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took his two young men with him, together with Isaac, his son, he cut the wood for the burnt offering, departed, and went toward a place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place in the distance. Abraham said to the young men, stay here on the, with the donkey, and I, with the boy, will go there, worship, and return to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Then he took his hand, uh, took his hand in the fire and the knife, and they both went on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father. My father, he answered, here I am, my son. He said, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham replied, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And they both went on together. They came to the place where God had told him about, and Abraham built the altar there, set the wood in order, bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the wood. Then Abraham put out his hand and took his knife to kill his son. But the angel of Adonai called him and said, Abraham, Abraham, he answered, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy. Do not do anything to, you, to him. For now I know that you are a man who fears God because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Abraham raised his eyes, looked, and behind him was a ram caught in the bushes by its horns. Abraham went took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. So a couple things at work here. The line of David, Abraham 
goes to Isaac. It goes to Jacob, who Jacob then wrestled God and was renamed Israel. It eventually gets to King David. And then from David, who comes? Mary. And not only Mary, but from a distant relative in the same line of David comes Joseph. Now, the other amazing part is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is exactly the place where Jesus was crucified. So in the exact same place that Jesus was crucified, his, uh, you know, the line further down the line from him, way before his crucifixion and resurrection ever happens, the first possible crucifixion and testing of faith happens from his lineage. And not only that, the wood that was placed upon him by Abraham to carry up there for the burnt offering was a call out to the cross that Jesus would carry. And in Abraham's heart, he had already crucified his son. And God tested him and said that his faith was made pure because he was willing to go through with that test. Now, the ram is also symbolic, too, because a ram is basically a male lamb or male sheep, and it was caught in the thistles. Now, the ram is symbolic of the body of Christ, and the thistles are supposedly a call towards the crown of thorns. All of this in Genesis, before the prophecies, before the actual event, you know, some thousand years later, that's what makes it real. And then we want to get into the Christmas story. We want to get into the shepherds and their role, because the way that they make it out to be in most telling of the uh, Christmas story is, you know, shepherds were out there watching some flocks and they looked up and they saw, oh my gosh, and, you know, the angel shows before them. But there is some significance to these shepherds. So before we get into the shepherds and the birth and what have you, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the coming of John the Baptist, because it's a very important part to this whole story, especially when you get into the beginning of Jesus's ministry um, and, and how John the Baptist or John the Baptizer uh, is in alignment with the shepherds. Um, now, Zechariah, Zechariah was uh, uh, someone who was a, a priest um, his wife, Elizabeth, they both were from the line of Aaron. Um, Elizabeth was supposedly barren, wasn't supposed to have a child. Of course, the angel Gabriel went before Zechariah and then eventually Elizabeth. And Elizabeth was pregnant, which was a miracle. I mean, she was supposed to not be able to have a child. And she was about six months ahead of Mary. Um, so coming out of Luke 1... Um, 40, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be the great. Uh, he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. So eventually, Mary meets up with Elizabeth, and you know they're talking about it. Um, Elizabeth, uh, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who said was unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. So Mary goes to meet. I think it's her cousin something like that, uh, with Elizabeth. And uh, this is the amazing part. At the time, Mary got ready and hurried down to the town in the hill of the uh, country of Judah, where, where uh, she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so highly favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Now, why would he leap for joy? Well, that's because John the baptizer was in the womb and he is a Levite. He's one of the Levites who can anoint the sacrificial lambs. 
And that's where we get into the shepherds. Now, as we get into the Christmas side of what I'm trying to put together to show you that there is no contradictions in the Bible, that it spans across the entire Bible, uh, and it's seamless, and it gives us a basis for a rock-solid foundation upon who has given us the natural rights that we enjoy and that we protect as American citizens with the Constitution, um, I kind of want to break it down like my pastor does, because when we, at my church at least, when we talk about Christmas, we don't just talk about the Christmas story. We first talk about the beginning of John, and where John sets up that Jesus was with God, the Word was with God, Jesus and the Word were with God all together in the very beginning. This is before creation, that God spoke creation, Jesus brought it to fruition, and that he was there from the very beginning. So that has to be established. And then we get into the Christmas story, and we marry it up with the crucifixion and resurrection, even though we celebrate Easter much later. But I think the full picture needs to be put together. So the actual verse, and again, I've been bouncing in between different versions of the Bible, but one of the ones that I really like to go to is the uh, Jewish-English translation, because Hebrew has so much more richness to some of its uh, alliteration, and the, and the words that they use have a broader meaning than what could be translated into English. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came to be through him. And without him, nothing was made, had been. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. So who's he talking about when he says he? He's talking about Jesus. And that's the reason why I'm doing this podcast is, uh, you know, when you see things like what happened to the Fox News Christmas tree, where some Antifa thug is going to go out there and burn it to the ground, and they're just going to gleefully pee all over Christ, uh, Christmas because of it. Or you see a meme that was passed around that I saw that said, Christianity, the popular belief that the celestial Jewish baby, who is also his own father, born from a virgin mother, died for three days so that he could ascend to heaven on a cloud and then make you live forever only if you symbolically eat his flesh, drink his blood, and telepathically tell him you accept him as your Lord and Master so he can remove all evil force from your spiritual being that is present in all humanity because an immoral woman made from a man's rib was hoodwinked by, talk, by a talking reptile possessed by a malicious angel to secretly eat forbidden fruit from a magical tree. Sounds perfectly plausible. Well, we're showing you that it is plausible, <laughs> and there's so much that, that isn't being spoken about that should be when you get into these discussions. You know, I, I've got some individual I was talking with right now online who's basically trying to say that Krishna, Buddha, you know, they're all the same message, just different messenger as Jesus. Uh, yeah, it's a little different, different deities. Uh, some of their foundations are based off of nuggets of truth, but they twist it. So let's take the real truth and let's get into the, the actual Christmas story or part of it um, from Luke, uh, Luke 2, actually. In the countryside nearby where some shepherds were spending their night in the fields guarding their flocks, an angel of Adonai appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terrified. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid because I am here announcing to you good news that will bring great joy to all people. This very day in the town of David, there was born for you a deliverer who is the Messiah, the Lord. Here's how you will know. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly, along with the angel was a vast army from heaven praising God in the highest heaven. Glory to God. And on earth, peace among people of goodwill. No sooner had the angels left them uh, and had gone back into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened that Adonai has told us about. So we also get into uh, the fact that 
This is the round the time of the first census. So a government mandated census for the first time in an empire the size of Rome is drawing everyone to a town where these shepherds aren't exactly just regular shepherds. And we'll get into that. Um, because when typically when they tell the story, you just think that yeah, there's some random shepherds in the field and they saw this angel. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot more to the shepherds that shows the depth of this entire event. So from continuing on in Luke 2, so Joseph, because he was a descendant of David, See, we talked about the, the line of David coming from Abraham and Isaac, the crucifixion of Isaac and Abraham's heart on the same identical spot that Jesus would soon be crucified some thousands of years later. <laughs> That's why I say soon, so funny. It, it took a while. But where Isaac is carrying the wood for the, the offering, just like Christ was carrying his cross. Same exact spot. So the line of David, which included Mary, included Joseph from a distant distant relative, so it wasn't kind of strange. In the city of David, right? Uh, back to the verse, a descendant of David went up from the town of Nazareth in the Galilee to the town of David called Bethlehem um, to be registered with Mary to whom he was engaged and who was pregnant. While they were there, the time had came to give birth and she gave birth to a first child, a son. She wrapped him in cloth and laid him down in a feeding trough because there was no space for them in the living quarters. Now, the fact that he was wrapped up in swaddling clothes, as they say, is very important too. So why do I keep going on about the shepherds? Well, check this out. The shepherds who were abiding by their flocks in the fields were perhaps watching over temple sheep, sheep that were being bred and protected to be sacrificed at the holy temple in Jerusalem. Um, these shepherds may have been men who were accustomed to preparing lambs, which symbolically represented the Messiah in their cleanliness, perfection, and their sacrifice on the altar of the temple. This gives added depth to the meaning to these scriptures, which tell of the angels who came to these shepherds to proclaim the birth of the Lamb of God, the Savior of mankind, who would after the last and ultimate, or be the last and ultimate sacrifice. The shepherds who kept them were men who were specifically trained for this royal task. They were educated in what an animal that was to be sacrificed had to be, and it was their job to make sure that none of the animals were hurt, damaged, or blemished. These lambs were apparently wrapped in swaddling clothes to protect them from injury, which, of course, was also what they used to wrap Jesus when he was a baby, because they didn't want the animals kicking their legs around and potentially uh, causing some sort of blemish, some sort of wound, some sort of scarring. Um, the place where the angels appeared to the shepherds is traditionally known as the Tower of Flock or Migdal Egdar, which is a very, very near Bethlehem. One commenter notes, this watchtower from ancient times was used by the shepherds for protection from their enemies and wild beasts. It was the place where these sheep and lambs were brought to give birth to the lambs. In this sheltered building cave, the priest would bring their ewes or, you know, lambs, which are about to uh, basically for the protection of the lamb. These special lambs come from a unique flock, like the line of David, maybe, which were de designated for sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. It's, it's simply amazing. Because that's why I say, you know, when they talk about these, uh, you know, these shepherds, they just kind of gloss over them like, well, you know, they're uh, shepherds that were just out there watching over their flocks. These people had to be trained. I mean, listen to the training that they or the things that had to be done for required sacrifices. The animal had to be sacrificed or for the animal to be sacrificed. It had to have the following general characteristics. The animal had to be ceremonial or ceremonially clean. Um, they had to be uh, utilitarian, meaning usable for food or sustenance, domesticated, so those that obeyed their master's will and more or less endeared to the offerer. Um, although some wild game animals were permissible for food, no game animal was permissible for sacrifice except for the young pigeon since the very poor could capture these with their own hands and 
costly. The animal selection was based upon social economic status of the individual Jewish member of the Commonwealth. Um, there was a division of labor between the worshiper and the priest. The labor for the worshiper involved five things. It had to bring the animal, kill the animal, skin the animal, gut the animal, and then butcher the animal. Meanwhile, the priest had to do these three things, prepare the wood for the fire, sprinkle blood on the altar, and place the dismembered animal's body on the fire, which that's actually what Abraham was doing with Isaac, preparing it with the wood. Um, it's, it's pretty remarkable when you look at that. But So all, all, while everyone is being centered in this area of town for the first ever census, which is a God thing because he's pulling all this together, because it also had to be a, an empire that wasn't based on God, but it had to be an empire that uh, enveloped uh, much of the land um, or much, many of the nations, which Rome did. Uh, it also was the place where all the sacrificial lambs are going. And the ultimate sacrificial lamb of all was, was uh, you know, born right there wrapped up just like the sacrificial lambs in a place where lambs would be raised, which the Jewish people thought if, the, if Jesus is going to come and be the deliverer that's been prophesied about, they thought he was going to come and just, you know, kick butt and take names and restore Israel as the rightful kingdom. But he was restoring a kingdom way beyond that. And so they couldn't figure out as he got older, well, this guy who was born in a manger and, you know, comes from meager means and he's he's not out there like kicking butt and taking names and restoring Israel as the big capital, the big, you know, big Kahuna city. He's just out there preaching. <laughs> so they thought he was a heretic. They thought he was blasphemous. And it's really interesting when you get into John the Baptist, his cousin, as we talked about earlier, you know, he leapt in the womb. Well, John the Baptist is also a Levite priest. So like the Levite shepherds who were able to uh, raise these sheep and keep them unblemished, keep them perfect for the sacrifice in the temple, the Levite priests are the ones who would declare that these are sacrificial lambs. They would come to inspect them. They would come to, uh, to verify that they were unblemished, and they would basically declare them. So while John the Baptist begins his ministry, and he's out there eating locusts and what all, and he's you know, growing a sizable following, preaching the word, six months behind him is Jesus. And John the Baptist knew Jesus was the one coming. That's why he leapt in the womb. And what's interesting is when Jesus is showing up, while John the Baptist is baptizing people uh, in, the, in the river. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, God's lamb, the one who has taken away the sin of the world. This is the man I was talking about when I said, after me is coming someone who has come to rank above me because he existed before me. I myself did not know who he was, but the reason I came immersing, which is baptizing, with water, was so that he might be made known to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the spirit coming down from heaven like a dove and remaining on him. I myself did not know who he was, but the one who sent me to immerse in water, baptize, said to me, the one on whom you see the spirit descending and remaining is the one who immerses you in the Holy Spirit. So basically, a Levite priest saw the Lamb of God, Jesus, and declared him as the sacrificial lamb. And then he's baptized by, uh, by John the Baptist, which is amazing. And this is right when Jesus kickstarts his, uh, his full-blown ministry. The other thing that's incredible is uh, his crucifixion. As he's walking up on Mount Moriah with the cross on his back, just like Isaac did, just like Abraham did, um, and he's crucified. He says to the point, uh, it is finished or it is complete. Um, when he did that and he passes away, he did so 
at three o'clock in the evening. That was the exact time that the last sacrificial lamb was killed for the day at the temple. I mean, it all comes together from the very beginning, crushing with your heel, you know, crushing evil with his heel. The seed of the woman would defeat evil and sin. It gets into the prophecies. It gets into the line of David, brings it all the way to the manger in Bethlehem, and then all the way to be anointed by John the Baptist, the Levite priest, and then to be crucified, to be resurrected. That's, I mean, there's no contradictions in the Bible, friends. It goes all the way through. Now, there's some different little stories in between and different other things, but that it's seamless in that, in that theme going all the way through. And that is my Christmas gift to you. Um, we're going to get into another thing that was amazing about America and the covenant that was made with George Washington because many of the founders really firmly were ensconced in the belief of Jesus Christ. And that is why we are built as the nation that we are. And that is why it's coming undone because they have decided to pull Christianity, pull the foundation that it's built upon with God and Jesus and replace it with themselves as the Lord and savior, the state, the politicians, the corporate overlords who decided they're going to embed themselves with politicians in a uh, government uh, corporate co-opt. So the war had finished and the debates over the, uh, the new constitution they're done. Um, the arguments have been presented. The Federalist, they supported this new document, the Constitution, because they believed it was necessary for this young nation to prosper. On the other hand, the Anti-Federalist feared that the new Constitution gave too much power to the federal government. Would states lose their autonomy once this new document was ratified? After four grueling months of debate, the new Constitution was ratified and the states had to decide who would be their first president? Well, George Washington was chosen unanimously as the nation's first president without a single dissenting vote. So George Washington decides he is going to take the opportunity during his 1789 inaugural address to throw in an important part. And this is the covenant that he made, um, the covenant that he made with God. And the portion that I'm going to read goes into that covenant. It's got a little length to it, so I don't want to read the entire uh, inaugural address. But I'm going to start in a section close to where the covenant begins. By the article establishing the executive department, it is made the duty of the president to recommend to your consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. The circumstances under which I now meet you will equip me from entering into that subject farther than refer to the great constitutional charter under which you are assembled and which in defining your powers designates the objects to which your attention be given. It will be more consistent with those circumstances and far more congenial with the feelings uh, which actuate me to substitute in place of recommendation of particular measures the tribute that is due to the talents, the rectitude, the patriotism, which adorn the characters selected to devise and adopt them. In these honorable qualifications, I behold the surest pledges that as on one side, no local prejudices or attachments or separate views, nor party animosities will misdirect the comprehensive and equal eye, which ought to watch over this great assemblage of communities and interests. That's pretty amazing. That's awesome right there. We, we need more of that. So on another and the foundation of our national policy will be laid in the pure and immutable principles of private morality and the preeminence of a free government be exemplified by all the attributes which can win the affections of its citizens and command the respect of the world. I dwell on this prospect with every satisfaction which an ardent 
love for my country can inspire since there is no truth more thoroughly established than that there exists in the economy and course of nature and indissolvable union between virtue and happiness between duty and advantage between the genuine maxims of an honest and magnanimous policy and the solid rewards of public prosperity and felicity. Since we ought to be no less persuaded that the protipitous smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained, and since the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finally staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. Besides ordinary objects submitted to your care, it will remain with your judgment to decide how far an exercise of the occasional power delegated by the fifth article in the Constitution is rendered expedient at the present juncture by the nature of objections which have been urged against the system or by the degree of inquietude which has given birth to them. Instead of undertaking particular recommendations on the subject in which I could be guided uh, by no lights derived from the official opportunities, I shall again give way to my entire confidence in your discernment and pursuit for the public good. The most amazing part is the fact that right before he gives this inaugural address, a couple things happen. Washington opens the Bible at random to Genesis 49. Washington places left hand upon the open Bible, raised his right hand, and then proceeded to take the following oath. I do uh, solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. Washington then bent over in an act of reverence for his God, who saved him many times before, and kissed the Bible. Now, Chancellor Livingston from uh, New York said, It is done. Livingston then turned to those who were assembled as eyewitnesses to history and shouted, Long live George Washington, the first president of the United States. George Washington then went inside the federal hall to the Senate chamber and delivered the first ever inaugural address. Washington opened his address with a prayer, and it went like this. It would be peculiarly improper to omit in this first official act my fervent supplications to that almighty being who rules over the universe, who presides in the council of nations, and whose providential aids can supply every human defect. That is, that his benediction may consecrate to the liberties and happiness of the people of the United States, a government instituted by themselves for these essential purposes. And he went on, he said, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. Every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. And in the important revolution just accomplished in the system of their united government, the tranquil deliberations and voluntary consent of so many distinct communities from which the event has resulted cannot be compared with the means by which most governments have been established without some sort of pious gratitude, along with humble anticipation of the future blessings which seem to uh, which seem to presage these reflections arising out of our present crisis have forced themselves too strongly on my mind to be suppressed you will join uh, with me i trust in thinking that there are none under the influence of which the proceedings of the new and free government can be more auspiciously commence since we ought to be no less persuaded that the Propitious smiles of heaven can, ever, can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. And since the preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered as deeply, perhaps as finally staked, on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. In his address, Washington made it clear that no nation can expect to be blessed by God. If a nation forgets God, she will lose everything and the blessing that God has given her. 
And that seems to be something we see right now. But I think we needed to go back and revisit the fact that we have natural rights. The Constitution protects those natural rights from being trampled upon by we the people and by the people we put in representative uh, positions. And then we needed to establish, especially during Christmas time, the foundation and confidence that our creator is Jesus Christ, is God, and that those rights were given to us by him. And I think we've established that through going back to the beginning to see that this was supposed to happen, and that through the line of David, we start to see the makings of what's to come, and then the prophecies, hundreds and sometimes thousand years in advance. And then when it did happen, when it did come to pass, when he was born and when he was uh, raised up, all of the little things that we take for granted, shepherds, manger, what have you, are all significant and all play a giant role because there's more to it than just some people hanging out or a building in which he was born in. And then, of course, his uh, ascendance into his ministry and then into the uh, crucifixion and resurrection. And, of course, then we see George Washington and the Founding Fathers decided to firmly ensconce Christian values in their decision-making, in their drafting of the Constitution. And then George Washington takes it a step further and proclaims a covenant on his first inauguration. And now we are the longest-lasting, most incredible government in human history the most blessed, the most prosperous, the most free. And that's my Christmas gift to you guys. Merry Christmas. Uh, I may take time off until after the new year. So you might not, this might be the last show of the year, um, unless something crazy pops up and I, and I feel it's important to put out, but I'll let you know that. But Merry Christmas birth of our savior the reason for the season this is my christmas gift to you the listeners i appreciate you guys thank you for taking the time to listen and uh taking the time to hang out with me i'm adrian slade we'll see you guys next time god bless